Margaret Montgomery of De Montford University. And now we're recording our chat, so I'll give you a copy of it. Thank you. Uh, as it's going to go to some research. Yes, it is. And what's the point of the research? Well, I'm interested in what's at stake in researching and writing about the representation of the disabled, people who are disabled and disability. And what do you mean by what's at stake? Well, I'm interested in why it's important to do that, which is going to be one of the first questions I'm going to ask you and mm -hmm. why you did research in that area. Mm -hmm. And also whether um, there's actually a role or what role the non-disabled researcher can play in this research because there are clearly issues of um, ownership about the, the sort of discourses or the, the sort of the um, experience of disability which mm -hmm. people who are who don't have that experience can't understand in the same way mm -hmm. so it's trying to um, think about what my role as a non-disabled researcher can be how I can make sense, you know, how I can relate, um, and right. how I can be useful, I suppose. And what will way. you do with this research once you've done it and it's all sorted and the answers are there? Right. Well, initially, um, my idea is that I, it will go into my teaching because mm -hmm. I teach issues around media, gender, and identity. And I think that this sort of idea about, um, particularly some of the work you've done on normalcy, is central to those debates. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also interested in trying to um, promote the study of uh, media representations of disability more broadly within the media studies curriculum because, as I understand it, between 12 and 19% of the British population um, experience disability. Mm -hmm. And if we look at, for example, television representations, which I think are still the main ones that most people have access to, um, the amount of representation is just decreasing, it seems to me. Excellent. And and so, what? How did you come to have an interest in disability? Um. Well, what the major reason which has made me think about doing this is that in two thousand and two, I left education. I used to work at Derby University, and um, I left, and I looked for other things to do. And one of the things was that I worked in a um, community project doing an oral history project but as part of that I taught adults with learning disabilities and I taught um, I devised a course of film and television studies to work with them and part of that process was actually me learning a lot about them and their experiences and I have to say it was one of the most um, fulfilling teaching experiences I've ever had and I would love to do some more of that work and one of the things that shocked me was their everyday experience of discrimination and the way in which all sorts of people felt that they had a right to be unkind, cruel and to say things which they didn't even think about which had such a terrible effect on my students and I wondered about what gave people the feeling of the right to discriminate in those ways and why it is that we've used certain words in our lives as part of a negative vocabulary And why do you think that is? Well, I think that we have a very long cultural tradition of this. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking now about... Um, I've been looking at Little Britain and thinking about the role of the fool in British comedy, which goes back to the earliest days of, of written comedy, at least, and, and probably goes back much further. So there's obviously some way in which particularly anybody who looks physically different um, has been seen as um, unacceptable or 
not graced by God or, or whatever that was. Um, but I think one of the things which at the moment is circulating these ideas is the media. It, it has to be that in the sort of stories and fantasies and fictions that the people who um, play negative roles are described often in terms of disability, which, and I know that you've done some research which kind of backs that up, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when you see some, an actor do things like Little Britain, which is fundamentally quite offensive, do you think they give it a second thought in those terms that you're looking at it? No, I, I don't think that... They, it's difficult because they won't be interviewed about it. Um, I think Little Britain um, has kind of some points where you could say that they raise issues because it, there was a very interesting um, survey done by Ouch, which is the BBC website, mm-hmm. and in that survey, um, people were asked to say both disabled and non-disabled people were asked to say who their favourite character was on television. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing because they voted for Timmy from South... Disabled... People who identified as disabled chose Timmy as the first one from South Park, um, which I wouldn't say was a... Well, I thought it was fascinating. Is Um, Timmy the one who always gets killed? I don't think so, no. All he does is he just says Timmy. That's the only thing he can do. Um... And the story sort of centre around that. But I'm not a great watcher of South Park, so I can't really say. Uh, But it seemed to me that maybe that would be younger voters doing that. And perhaps that's the only representation for young Mm -hmm. disabled people, Mm -hmm. which is quite shocking, isn't it? (laughs) Dr Kerry Weaver from ER and um, Andy Pipkin from Little Britain. Is he the one in the wheelchair? Yes, yes. Right. Who, um, I mean, I actually... Of all the representations in Little Britain, it's probably the one that I find simultaneously incredibly troubling, but also more endearing. I mean, I think there is something about Andy sometimes, because it seems to me that you could read it that, although his disability isn't... Well, he could have something which sometimes lets him be in a chair and not others, but that isn't the story. But um, it seems to me that he probably has learning difficulties is the thing mm-hmm. which is never actually spoken about there. But the, the things he does which are quite good is that he makes apparent the way in which some people who are disabled are controlled by their carers. And I think that that's quite an interesting thing to look at there. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that perhaps raises a diff. I wondered if that was why some disabled people would mm. identify with that. But mm. I don't know the mm. answer to that. Mm. Will we ever? <laughs> <laughs> so now you ask me a couple of questions. Okay, so... Let's give it a go. What made you decide to research the representation of disabled people and disability in films and the media more generally? Uh, what made me do it? I think fundamentally it was just a progression of being at university. Uh, I'd like to say I had this great passion and I was driven to it, Mm. Uh, but I actually really wasn't. I had done done a degree in English and history and various different things, and uh, then I did an MA in American Literature, and that was the first place I really looked at disability, Mm. was in literature. I did my dissertation on the novels of Nathaniel West, an American writer, and uh, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. And I think uh, the notion of abnormality and difference is rife within his novels, and I think he did it in a very way, a very interesting way of exploring the kind of normalcy ideas. It was mm-hmm. about, to me, American literature, which is what makes it so much more interesting than what we call English literature, was the very fact that it is about the notion of identity. 
but as much about the notion of the identity of the state mm. as the individual. And that, to me, is what makes American literature interesting. And it's also what makes English literature crap. <laughs> In, a very informed <laughs> educational perspective. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> English literature is about being clever, by and mm. large. Uh, be that being showing your vocabulary or showing how articulate you are or playing games with form, style, all those kind of things. Mm. I think. And that goes back from Dickens to, you know, right through to kind of like Will's self. It's a long tradition of cleverness, basically. Mm. Very little else. And I think the American literature has so much more life and vibrancy to it because it is about that, what, what I am and what we are as mm. a nation. And I think that's very interesting. To some extent, you know, give let America exist for another two or three hundred years and they'll be as bad as us in their literature. <laughs> mm. Because I think, you know, with their, they are still a very new nation. You need mm. to define that. And, it, and it's a different kind of nation. It's a mm. nation where no one, no one is from there, unlike yes. everybody thinks. Well, there are some people who are from there. But their literature doesn't get read. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it doesn't get written, let alone no. read. Or published. Uh, so, mm. but, and that's what's interesting. Mm. Uh, and so I did my MA in that which I loved I think that was the best thing I've ever done mm. it was the hardest thing it was the best thing I ever did so when I finished it was either get a job or uh, go and do some more courses and <laughs> I didn't want to get a job so uh, I looked around and, and someone suggested I did a PhD and because I'd say my lifelong passion has always been cinema mm. but not disability I just love films mm. I I used to go about 300 times a year, which is, Gosh. it can be quite hard to do, but I managed to do it. And I'd say from when I was about 15, 14, 15, till, you know, even say 10, 15 years ago, I used to go between 200 and 300 times a year to the cinema. And I, I, I'd go and see anything. And I love cinema. Uh, and so I decided to do a PhD in cinema. And again, it, it, it was the cinema that was more interesting to me than disability. Mm. And so when you go for an interview, you do a PhD, they say, you know, so what's your thing going to be? What, what's going to be exceptional? What's going to be different mm. about it? And around that time, you know, you're searching for your, uh, I used to call it your zebra. It's the thing that makes you stick <laughs> out, that, that'll give, make it, enable you to make your mark. Mm. And, uh, and there was very little about disability. Mm that I knew of there was actually a bit more than I thought once you mm. get into it there is a bit more than you thought than I thought uh, and so and the people at I did it at the University of Warwick and I did it with a guy uh, Professor Richard Dyer who did representation mm. and his mainly was gay mm. imagery and uh, it was very interesting actually because I was also offered a place at Birmingham University in the Centre for Cultural Studies mm. Uh, and I had an interview there, and, and it was very different. It was yes. a very different experience. When I went to see uh, Professor Dyer, it was much more relaxed, uh, and it kind of like it was it was going to be fun. Mm. Whereas uh, Birmingham, it was going to be that your life depended upon it, mm. and I thought that's not good uh, to have that such intensity. Mm. And I know a couple of people who did their heads in being at Birmingham, so I mm. thought, mm, no, I'm not doing it at Birmingham. Great rate of non production as well <laughs> is it <laughs> uh, because it was as if their life depended upon mm. it and, uh, and and I thought well it's only academia you know there's just people stuck around reading and writing mm. so uh, 
I decided to do it at Warwick, and it, it was really just coming up with something original. <laughs> it wasn't any great passion, and it's, and it's a bit like the discovery of what disability is. I'm a great believer in the social model. Mm. A lot of people did a course and they saw a beam of light and the whole world opened to them in the kind of theory. Mm. Again, it was just a gradual, slow development of an awareness and a knowledge of the subject and the issue. Mm. It wasn't any great passion. I think, and I'd say that's because I'm a very normalised disabled person in the sense that, uh, as, as I was saying to you earlier, I went to mm. school with about 50 people, uh, most of whom are dead. Mm. The other few are, are probably in institutions. And out of that 50, there's probably five or six of us who ended up in the community, which says to the degree how normalised I am and we are, that we managed to escape that kind of institution stroke uh, death route. Mm. And when I say dead, I know a lot of them just are dead because they gave up, because their lives weren't going anywhere. Mm. And they took to drink or eating or mm. stuff, and you just eat yourself, drink yourself to death, mm. which I know a few did. And so I think as a very normalised person, uh, you know, I, I've, that's how I arrived at it. Combined with the fact that... Uh, I've completely forgotten what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, but it, but it, it kind of... It just happened and it, it, it wasn't... And I think as a working class person as well, when I did mm. my degree, I kept thinking, well, I must have missed something because this is so highly valued. Uh, I didn't see it like that and I kept thinking I must have missed something here so I did an MA and I got me MA and you're sitting there thinking well this thing that everybody loves there's got to be something that I'm missing here and so I, con I constantly mm -hmm. did another thing which again was uh, I wasn't bright enough to think well it, has, it isn't actually that special uh, it, the aura that the working class give uh, higher education and degrees mm -hmm. is, is it's not worthy of it <laughs> and I think that's why I ended up doing a PhD in the subject I did because I just kept thinking oh, I must be missing something here this this magical mystery world it doesn't it isn't like that really and, and mm. I kept I kept thinking it was me but perhaps maybe I mean it's interesting that your centre is called the outside centre because in a way people who are outsiders on a system often do see it more clearly mm. I think and understand the mm. rules in a way that people who inhabit them all the time don't mm. Mm. so I don't know if if that was part of because how did you become normalised because you didn't live a normalised existence from what you were saying so it's very interesting that that you I became... think it's because of it was a Christian school the special school I went mm -hmm. to, run by very middle-class people. And I picked up a lot of their kind of mentalities as a route to being valued as mm. a person. And not that I achieved it there. And I'd say, as a disabled person, you don't particularly achieve it. You never achieve it, in fact, as a disabled mm. person, because you're always a second-class citizen, whatever you've mm. done. Uh, even the most super normalised people are fundamentally still second class citizens within society. So, but I think I picked it up at school because uh, you know I wasn't with my family. You know, I went to mm. school for forty weeks of the year. It was a boarding school from the age of seven. So oh. you know, I didn't particularly pick up a lot of the working class mentality of my family. Mm. You know, who grew up on council estate, and I picked up a lot of the mores and values of the people who were around me were who were. Very middle class, mm. very middle class. Middle class do good in Christians. Mm. Not that I have a problem with middle class do good in Christians. I think they do a lot of good work. Mm. You know, they do things that I don't want to do and they mm. help people. But it is a particular mentality. Mm. And I presume that's where I got that kind of 
aspiration to normalisation from. Equally, you saw that uh, what happened to a lot of the other people who I'd grown up grown up with in schools. You know, they mm. left, they went in an institution, they left, they died. So it's a sense of survival in a way. I think so, yeah. And maybe a wish for adventure, I suppose. It must have uh, been. No, because I, I wouldn't necessarily say I've enjoyed particularly being normalised because I, no. I often envy the idea of just being in an institution, never having to make another decision in my life. I think, that's <laughs> I think inc- you'd hate it after <laughs> ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I, I can sit here and think that's an incredibly attractive option, especially you're in mm. a society that hates you and then they give you this opportunity to abdicate all responsibility. It's kind of like... Mm, I sometimes think that would have been a good idea. I'm glad mm. I didn't because, you know, I've got a good life and I don't want to criticise it. Yes. But, you know, I have been on your dark, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, that's a pun, isn't it? <laughs> but on difficult days, I can see that must... Well, I'd say I have that thought every day because every day is a difficult day, I think, yes. if you're, if you're yeah. severely disabled. So yeah. I think... Yeah. I was, what you were saying about um, how it doesn't matter what class you are as well if you're disabled, because I know there was something about... um because Tom Shakespeare, who mm-hmm. is one of the sort of best-known... You mean baronet? I was going to baron say... Baron Shakespeare. Exactly, he's a baron, and yet he says that people, he gets offended, and I, rightly so, because people will take pictures of him on their mobiles mm. because he's um, a, a small person, isn't short he? Statue, yeah. A short stature dwarf. person. A dwarf. Yes, I, ne- I never know the correct nomenclature there, but... So let's say all dwarf, short stature, and dwarf. <laughs> But but because of that, and you can see how insulting that is Mm. for people to be perpetually Mm. paraded as some kind Mm. of freak. I suppose the only well, you can take pictures of them back, but you don't want them, do you? Mm. Mm. And so on. I think uh, having said that, I also think something completely different, which seems a contradiction. Mm -hmm. I think that the most important thing in a disabled person's life is not their impairment; it is their class. That's the thing that defines mm. you, I think, most of all, more than disability. Uh, and I know Tom, you know, he doesn't like being photographed, but being a baron, uh, having money makes the difference. And having a father who's yes. a geneticist. Yes. And I think mm. that whole class makes all the difference to the degree to which you can be normalised and the degree to which you can exploit that to achieve uh, some semblance of normality. Mm. You're never normal. But I think a lot of disabled people from the upper classes can achieve a kind of version of it that is fairly relaxing and and satisfying based Mm. on class and money. I suppose they can create a world which makes their life much easier. And it's only when you walk along the street when you're the same as everybody. Well, to some extent, and this sounds terrible, it's only when you have to deal with the working class that you tend to manage to see how bad your life is or how abnormal you really are. Mm. Because I think... Middle class people have a, a veneer of civilization mm. that makes it much easier to uh, engage in that world without feeling too oppressed. It's often it, a very thin veneer, though. Absolutely, isn't it? I, it's not real, and mm. it is a veneer. And they are as wor- as bad, if not worse, mm. than than the man in the street. Uh, but it's it's different, and I think class is very different. I always use the argument that you know I know people who could uh, who call me a spastic. And uh, who who will treat me very well, and middle class people who will call me disabled who treat me much worse. Mm. And so, just because they got the terminology, they think they know what they think they know what they're doing, and they don't. Mm. Yes, and they just assume that you can't do anything. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And equally, they're they're much more uh, able to hold on to their perceptions. So, for example, I know someone who 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 asked for a reference once, and uh, he said, "I didn't drink because of my health," and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'd made it clear I don't drink alcohol because I disapprove of alcohol. And I'd made that patently clear. Mm. Uh, 
but they found that difficult to comprehend, so they had rationalised it that it was a health issue. <laughs> Sounds like th- they had a drink problem, actually. <laughs> rather than a moral issue. And, mm. and I couldn't understand this, but it was about them needing to, having the, the intelligence to rationalise it in a way that made it able for them to understand. Mm. Very strange. And I, yeah, so it sounds like they were sort of defining you totally in terms of the medical model as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Like everything was for your health. Absolutely. Often. When, in mm. fact, they found it much harder to comprehend that I would not drink alcohol on a kind of moral, philosophical principle. Mm. That's, That's why I'm boring. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that, Paul. <laughs> no, I used to drink a lot, and I think once you, if you give up drink, it's a bit like people who give up smoking, you get a bit puritanical. Yes. And I'm very puritanical when it comes to drink. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. So does that answer your question? I think so. I think it, yes, it does. It was about other passions that led me to it, really. Mm. That's what it is. Habit. Do you think, in retrospect, though, although those were your motivations to do it, and I think they're the best ones because it actually means that you get it done, because if you do something because it's worthy, mm. it's impossible. Mm. Mm. I've, I've tried so many worthy ventures in my life mm. and I fail <laughs> I, I, <laughs> the first hurdle. I'm glad I didn't do disability at undergraduate level and even postgraduate level and I only came to it at the end. I mm. think if I'd have been doing it from the beginning, it would have done my head in. Mm. And I'm quite glad. And I'd say, I would say to people, if you can go and do, do a degree, do a degree in something you like mm. and then do an MA in something else you like and then do a PhD in something completely different than you like. Mm. Uh, I'd say don't do everything the same because it'll... It's not good for your soul. No. And it'll probably kill your enthusiasm. Well, it's so contradictory as well, isn't mm. it, as soon as you start mm. doing different levels mm. of things? Absolutely. Mm. So do you think, um, well, should the non-disabled research these issues? And what are the sorts of problems and issues? I think they should. Uh, I think... There's a number of problems, but I think it's true of all groups. It's often, I think, non-disabled people researching things, one worries about where they're coming from in relation to it. So, for example, often they will bring a medical model mentality to the research Mm. issue. So that doesn't particularly help you if you're a social modelist as Mm. I am. Uh, Although I think, uh, you know, a medical model perspective can can offer some insights that I think shouldn't be underestimated. Mm. And I think that's useful. But I think the problems are is is that there's so few disabled people doing it mm. that if you then start getting the normals doing it as well, it's kind of like, well, how on earth are we going to get into these places? And that's part of the problem is yeah. our is our underrepresentation mm. in employment in mm. in the research institutions. Uh, so I think that that's a problem, and I don't have that. I wouldn't have a problem if there was the progression. So, for example, I think. Uh, issues of gender, for example, I think there was an explosion of women's studies in, Mm. say, the 70s and 80s after the kind of Mm. the rise of feminism and they went into the universities, they started doing the Mm. work and then they moved out of the universities into the production Mm. of their own images Mm. and and then men started coming in and looking at at those images and so there was a kind of... I don't think men stopped looking at those images. (laughs) (laughs) And we can name those websites as well, I'm sure. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? There was yeah. a progression so that women looked at how they were represented mm. and then they created yes. their own. Yeah. And then there was there was people in the institutions, mm. then there was people in the production. Mm. And so it didn't matter that men came in and took some of those roles mm. because there was still a kind of plethora, yes. a kind of pluralistic mm. uh, range.
range of opinions, mm-hmm. and, and that that's fine. I think the problem is for disabled people is is a uh, the disability movement have really failed to get into the universities like feminism did. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to get into the construction mm. of their own images either. And so they're, 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 the moment they make a kind of a, a move towards something, it is appropriated by others. I don't blame individual researchers and, and universities for taking the opportunities to do that. Because uh, to some extent, if they didn't, it's not like they're going to get disabled people to do it in instead. Mm. You know, that's not going to happen. Mm. But I think the problem is 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 much broader. And I think our disabled people's biggest problem is the way we're not allowed to construct our own images Mm. in any mass degree like women or even race uh, black uh, Asian uh, communities can construct their own Mm. identity in through cultural production which Mm. disabled people are, are not completely excluded from but it's very marginal or it's very much on the terms of a kind of normalized view you know we make and we're allowed to make we're funded to make films that make that are going to have a market so to speak which means you've got to pander to normal people Mm. with your production but i think in reality if you think about how women are very dominant in television for example Mm. uh, only in very particular roles though but i think they're in they're in every strata of of television production commissioning uh, and I think Channel 4 has played a good role mm. in that, whereas disabled people have not achieved that. Uh, mm. Often, uh, I think we've been intentionally prevented from doing that by the likes of Channel 4. I think Channel 4, my personal view is Channel 4 could have been, could have been the most significant agent of social transformation for disabled people mm. this country has ever seen, and when in fact they've actually become our biggest problem in their failure to deliver on that. So, I mean, I, I think this is a, a really significant point because, as we say, that, I mean, obviously there aren't as many disabled people as there are women, but a lot of women are disabled, mm-hmm. so that you get that kind of corollary going on. Um, but just the sheer volume of people should mean that in terms of the population, we should have those people... Um, in production so is it those old excuses that they used to they used to use for women you know that um women weren't strong enough to do things are those the arguments which prevent disabled people from doing things is it actually about i think it's it's, there's a number of things and it comes out there's there's, and i probably say this every week on my show (laughs) society is is caught between two wars in Mm. its view of disabled people on the one hand we have the processes of mass extermination of disabled people mm. through screening, termination, yeah. all of those kind of things on the one side. And then on the other, we've got a degree of equality that we've never had in our lives. Mm. And culture is often where those two things meet. And I think it tends to go with the uh, let's get rid of them fundamentally by mm. being very pro-normalisation, which mm. I think, as I've said before, the whole point of normalisation in cultural representation is is fundamentally about the negation of difference mm. and the reinforcement of the value of sameness, i.e. normality. So even the disabled people that are in the media are are often in it on the basis that they will reinforce the core values of our disabled people's mm. oppression. 
which in, in itself means that they're less liable to come out as disabled people mm-hmm. as well. So I think there are many disabled people in the media. A, it's either hidden or they spend their lives making it a meaningless part of their existence mm. rather than a core element of their identity, mm. uh, which I think is sad because it's, it's denying themselves who they are. Mm. But I understand why they do that, because the punishment is, you know, if you start making politicised programmes or making it a particular perspective, you're not going to stop getting the commissions and your contracts won't be renewed. Mm. Because if the main broadcasters are obsessed with with narrowing the definition of what's normal and what's abnormal, which which I think they're in that process, the kind of the making society a homogeneous banality, Mm. Uh, and everything outside of that is a freak, mm. which is almost a definition of Channel 4 in my view, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you've got serious problems of, of getting people to come out and and then take a stand. Mm. Yeah, it's, I was just thinking as you're talking about Jeremy Beadle because one of the things was that when he was on television, his hand mm-hmm. was never in shot. Absolutely. Um, but then it was always a story that was written about in the press about him. It's quite interesting. It was, they always had to mention it. But then it equally, a, he what is he most well known as is as, as a charity-orientated mm. television personality mm. who worked enormously for charity. Mm. And given that charities are the key... Uh, arbiters of oppressive imagery mm. and ideology against disabled people. Uh, that's one screwed up mind in my view. Yes. I suppose maybe it's where he came from and like, like you said, yeah. normalisation no, that I understand why people do that, you know. Mm. But it, it 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 in a way I, I see it as a as a form of self harm fundamentally. Mm. A denial. Yes. Uh, but equally, it's about making others less than you to reinforce yourself as you struggle to achieve that as someone who's different in a normalised society. Mm. So it's a way of saying, look, I am really normal. Look, I'm doing all this charity for this lot. I'm doing it all for that lot. You know, they're I, worse off than me. Yes, you know, mm. and I'm really like you lot. I'm, re- I'm really normal like you lot because I have to look at all this charity stuff I'm doing. Mm. And I think the disabled people who do that, and there are a lot of disabled people who do that, uh, I think it's not good for their soul. Mm. and their their sense of who they are and they must be terribly confused individuals that sounds harsh but I think I'd, I'd stick with that actually mm. and I do you think it's the same because I was thinking about education because actually um, at De Montfort one of the things I think is very good is that we have a very good support system for um, all students but mm-hmm. for anyone who needs any special accommodation they're very good at that but one of the surprising things is that there are very few disabled staff and it seems mm. to me that actually if you want to um, begin to change the institution you have to have those people mm. not necessarily talking about those issues but just mm. there as figures mm-hmm. I agree I think it's essential but I think again one of the problems is is I think often when those people are integrated into the system mm. what they are what they end up being is is a reflection of that system that is mm. at its core oppressive and mm. that's one of the problems so you tend to get very normalized disabled people being successful and mm. i would argue that success actually undermines any move towards the valuation of difference i've always, i've always argued that my success does very little but damage other disabled people but it makes me feel a lot better for not being particularly <laughs> successful. It means I'm much better. <laughs> uh, 
Well, welcome back to the show. We've got... I was going to call you Marion Montgomery then. I keep Don't getting ask Mar- me to sing. <laughs> Margaret Montgomery of De Montford University asking, uh, asking your host some guests, some questions. So... What's your next question? Right, well, there's just two follow-ups from what we were talking about, which is the first question, and I think it relates to what we were talking about, is why you called your um, organisation, or whatever you want to mm-hmm. say, the Outside Centre, because mm-hmm. like, I think that's an interesting... It's, it is interesting, and it causes us a lot of problems, because people say, can I come round to your centre? <laughs> uh, which is not what we wanted. Mm. Uh, equally, a lot of people look up the website because they think it's a rugby position. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and I think they're, they're terribly disappointed, those people. Uh, but the idea was is that we're, we're not part of the centre, we're outside of the centre. Mm. And, and equally that that's a definition of disabled people's existence is mm. outside of the centre. And that almost you're never going to be part of the centre, ever. So uh, no, I think that's why we called it Outside Centre. It was uh, myself and Anne Whitehurst, particularly, when we set up the organisation in about 99. Mm. So... So that's why. Ah, thank you. And the second question is, um, you, you were sort of saying one of the reasons, one of the problems about non-disabled people doing research and writing about disability mm-hmm. is actually that um, there's no space for disabled academics and researchers to do that. And one of the things I've noticed is that... Um, I can find stuff under the heading disability studies in the library and those Mm -hmm. tend to be more medical model books Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, or about caring or or community work. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas when I began to look in the areas of media and so on, what I found was that there was a lot more material on the internet Mm. than is actually published. Mm. And I don't know what you think about that, why that might be. I think it's because a lot of disabled people don't have the academic qualifications to give them entry to the hallowed turfs of academia (laughs) Uh, and Mm. I think that's the key and I think the internet is a great space of liberation for disabled people to get their views out there uh, be they right or wrong Mm. and I think but but fundamentally I think and given that the hierarchy in disability is kind of like uh, the blind the acquired and then the crippled uh, the the congenitals you know i think often it's if you're a congenitally disabled person such as myself i think your your insights are often much more considered and thoughtful and different and i think often that's an alienating aspect of what we have to say as well that prevents us entering those institutions so but but i'd probably argue fundamentally it's because most of us aren't that educated and so we're never going to get into the institutions to get published you know mm. our grammar's not very good and you know our ability to articulate may be limited uh those kind of things but i think in a way that's and equally if you are a disabled person who's got into academia mm. often you don't want to write about disability because no. you're too busy being normalised mm. and having, you know, wanting to be normal. That the last thing you want to write about is disability. Yes. It's so I bet you, if you looked at where what all the disabled academics write about, and if you looked at that across the board, took out disability studies specifically in mm. universities like Leeds, I bet you most of it wouldn't be about disability. The vast majority would be about every other possible mm. academic subject you can imagine. Well, that. 
but that's valid as well, isn't it? Because people should ha be able Absolutely. to. Absolutely, yes. And they should be, um, and it would be fantastic <clears throat> if they could be experts in their fields and we could get to know them in the yes. same way that Stephen Hawking's made, you know, yes. this very visible figure. Yes. It would be fantastic if we had somebody in every realm. And as I've said, I don't, I don't blame individuals for doing that mm. uh, because that's the world we live in. Mm. Uh, and the pressures of, of being abnormal and the consequences of that are quite extreme. You won't mm. get jobs. You know, if no. you go around being very politicised crippled, you're not going to get jobs. You know, and whereas it's much better if you go in and you say, well, I, w I want to do art history, you know, you're going to go much further mm. if you don't... Because often those kind of institutionalised people in academia often they're as trapped in a kind of negative view of disability as anybody else. And they'll love someone coming in who's disabled who wants to reinforce their values of life, mm. which are normalised. And if it's about their subject as well. Mm. Although as an academic, I love the person who comes in and challenges that. Mm. I mean, I've, but, but I think that that's too much weight to put on people as well, to expect but equally, somebody... I think that's... I, <laughs> I'd say that makes you an exceptional academic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, in the sense, I think a lot of academics, that's the last thing on earth they want to do is be challenged. Mm. Uh, I think I, I don't have a very high view of academics. No. Uh, and I don't think that many of them want to be challenged. I think often those that want to be challenged are are often working class academics who mm. come in for the challenge. Whereas mm. you get a lot of, you know, middle, upper middle class academics. And they really just really want an easy life that they glide on along with people reinforcing their own views. Mm. I don't have a high view of academics. No, well, I, mean, <laughs> I can understand why in, in lots of ways. And and I also think, though, that the other argument you were making about perhaps the level of skill of people, because when you once you begin to read a lot of academic work, you don't notice a lot of good writing and you don't notice... <laughs> you know, so I, I suspect that's a false argument that's provided by mm. publishers and so on as well. Mm. And I wonder... I suspect it's their argument would be something about market, which mm. I think is... Um, and I suspect there's also a circuit that goes on which is associating anything to do with um, disability with worthiness. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that, that, say, the film festival that you put on is trying to break through. Mm -hmm. You know, it's trying to challenge those mm -hmm. kind of well, models. Uh, and that's very interesting because, for example, we were talking about the char charity mm -hmm. kind of mentality. Often it is the upper educated middle classes that are the most charitary charity orientated kind of people and that is the makeup of most academic institutions are those kind of people you know and I think it, the challenge that disabled people offer to them is so radical and fundamental that it becomes incredibly scary mm. if you start to accept disabled people as valued it, I think it starts to unravel the entire basis on which most normal people base their lives and privilege particularly absolutely mm. and so if you do have a degree of intelligence that make that makes you think about things i think disabled people can actually undermine your entire life in front of your very eyes that is the power that disabled people have which mm. is why i think we inspire the fear and terror that we do in so many ordinary people that makes them want to erase us from the face of the earth Mm. That sounds quite extreme, but I think I, I, my personal experiences of entering into middle class environments is that if you start to see, to show that you see yourself as equal in your difference, that inspires terror mm. in them to a degree that before it happened to me, I would never have guessed I had that power to mm. scare 
and undermine people's lives. Because you do, once you start to see disabled people from a social model perspective, that's that that disability is the social process of is of mm. exclusion and oppression. Mm. What most people do in their lives start you start to see them what you do as a very negative thing against other people. Most people are happily running a charity mile mm. for the local care home. Mm. If you actually see disability in a social model perspective, that is not a good thing to do that. That is a wholly damaging experience mm. to other disabled people, to disabled people's lives and experiences. Mm. It starts to see that you really have no interest in seeing them as equal beings, mm. you know, because what you should be doing is articulating to get them out in the community. Mm. Whereas the reality is if someone says, comes around and says, we're going to open... Uh, schizophrenia's drop-in centre in your street <laughs> what is most people going to do you know I mm. give them money and I'm now going to start a petition to stop you getting that in our mm. street yeah and that's the reality of the and there's always people. a lot of reasons aren't they that have nothing to do with prejudice absolutely mm. and I think people's ability to construct the way they live in society is very fragile mm. the normal identity is is one of the most fragile identities mm. there is and once you start to deal with disabled people in a kind of equal way, that view of life unravels. Mm, it's kind of the emperor's clothes game, Absolutely. I think. Yeah. And it can be, and I think it's an incredibly scary experience for non-disabled people to see their lives unravel in front of them, which is what a, a politicised, articulate disabled person will do, mm. especially if they're not reinforcing the values that they believe in. Mm. Gosh, that's, yes, that's food for thought. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big lot. It's scary. Yeah. Scary stuff. Yes. And it makes my next question seem quite banal, really. <laughs> um, well, actually, no, I suppose this one isn't quite as bad, and I suppose it links on, which is you've argued that the media is increasingly focusing on impairment, on difference, rather than disability perspectives. Um, could you say a bit more about <sighs> that? This is from your article that you wrote in 2003. You've so been reading. You've been reading again, haven't you? I've been being a good academic. <laughs> oh. I think when I, when I said earlier that in society we have these two opposing uh, binary yeah. oppositions of mm. like extermination and mm. equality, and that culture is where that battle takes place. Mm. And so I would argue that the media has taken sides on that and has gone with extermination mm. in the sense that it focuses on impairment in what it covers as a way of saying, look, these people are different, so what, what do we want to do with them? Mm. And often uh, it is impairment-based, so let's cure them. Medical. Mm. The news is full of disability, but it's usually mm. around either medical stories, advances, mm. how can we make them more normal, or the other big issue we often get on the news is about euthanasia. You know, these disabled people want to go over to Switzerland and get themselves killed. And so, to me, media focuses on impairment because it can reinforce the values of mainstream society against disabled people in that it either says, on the one hand, let's get rid of them, mm. you know, or on the other hand, it says, which ones can be normalised? How can we normalise certain people's impairments? So, for example, amputees, well, let's develop prosthesis so that it can be as good as mm. us. Mm. 
not quite as good as us, but almost. And so you've got the creation of the distinction between the good cripple and the bad cripple, and that's what culture mm. does. So there's the good cripple who we who can normalise themselves, which validates normality and says, well, they want to be like us, let's help them be mm. like us. Or there's those that can't, and that's, let's get rid of them. Mm. Which is why the people who suffer the worst are people with learning difficulties. Yeah, that's interesting. And they are the most marginalised. Mm. Because in the hierarchy of the value of disabled people, they are at the bottom and they have no value whatsoever. Mm. It was interesting what you were saying about prosthesis as well, because I remember reading Alison Lapper saying that um, she went to a school where they forced her to wear them and that it was incredibly painful. And that's not something that we're inviting... That, that, normals are invited to think about is the pain that we inflict mm. on disabled people to try and make them be normal. I had the same. I had mm. the same. When I was at school, we were forced to walk on crutches. I, I hated think. walking and I couldn't wait to get in a wheelchair mm. because I always used to say that uh, walking, I felt like a cripple. Mm. In a wheelchair, I just looked like one. <laughs> and I, I felt better in a wheelchair, much, mm. much better in a wheelchair. But the point was, is why did they want us to walk? Because mm. they wanted us to reinforce their values of normality, i.e. Mm. walking. And so we, 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 we were tortured into walking. If you were caught in a wheelchair, you got sent to bed with no supper at my school. Oh, God. Yeah. That's, I mean, I remember That's why I was thin at school. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? It's true. Um, I remember this, because when we were at school, the, the story of the utmost heroism was um, Douglas Barder. Whole, yeah, that Dougie. whole, which is such a damaging story in retrospect, isn't oh, it? We, I, we just took it hook, line yeah, and sinker. Yeah, I think the, the Douglas Barder's influence, it, the damage he's done to so many disabled people, uh, mm. kind of ideologically in how, mm. not him personally, yes. you know, because again... It's the image, isn't it, the yeah, icon? That, yeah. that was used by society to make so many... My dad suggested to me once that I had my legs cut off and had false ones so I could walk like Douglas Boner. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> and you're sitting there, right, Dad. Okay, I think I'll turn that one down. <laughs> because it, because of the value that was given to walking. And and think about the, mm. the disabled heroes of, of yesteryear and today are those that validate normality. They don't validate difference. Mm. They don't validate the lives of disabled people. And in fact, the opposite. They actually damage the lives of those disabled people that can't normalise mm. by marginalising them even further into the category of the useless eater, as the Nazis used to call us. And they're the ones that are increasingly going to be wiped out. Mm. And they are being wiped out. You know, Down syndrome, 95% termination rate. Spina bifida, the same, 95. You know, 90, 95. And that's only going to improve. When I say improve, that's from a society that wants to get rid of you. Mm. You know, and I think those kind of role models, and they're always there. You know, there was Douglas Bader. And I think even now, there's some of the Paralympians. And it's not them. It's not their fault, and we all do what we do to get through our lives, mm. but it's the way they're used by society mm. to construct a view of the good cripple and the bad cripple. And the good cripple is worthy of equality, and the bad cripple is only worthy of death. And that's, that's the reality mm. of disabled people's lives in society now. For example, we have equality, but if you're not being allowed to be born, equality is an irrelevance. Mm. And most of us, an increasing number of us, are not being allowed to exist. Mm. Well, I suppose part there, it's the difference between equality as a policy and equality as a lived experience, which is a very different thing. Right? Absolutely. And, uh, mm. and to me, the problem is, is the way that society now chooses of its own volition to erase disabled people mm. from society in a way 
that isn't excessively coercive and it's not forced upon them, people will choose it for themselves. For example, if you get pregnant, most people will choose to have an abortion. It won't, they won't be forced to. Mm. They will be encouraged to and supported to. Mm. Uh, that's a fantastic system if you want to get rid of us. Mm. That it's a choice rather than anything coercive like previous regimes in the past have done. Mm. But I suppose in the past they didn't have the technology to identify in the same way, so it's one cancels out the other, mm. I presume, mm. in respects. Mm. And you were saying about, so about learning disabilities, that those people are at the very bottom of the pile. Absolutely. Because mm. they can't be normalised. Mm. And so there's no point in putting that expenditure into the social function of 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 constructing normality for the non-disabled is is of no use. Mm. And I think they have very little utilitarian value. Mm. And equally, that the economic cost, if you did a cost-benefit analysis, exceeds what societies, especially societies that are in financial crisis, want to undertake. But what's an economy for? I, can't, I just can't understand the concept myself. I don't understand what, you know, why we bother to have an economy if it's not actually about serving the interests of the people who live in our world. Are we? Economies have never been about serving no, the interests of the people. But, but surely... <laughs> I know I'm a rampant idealist, but I just... Well, for example, you know, when, when British Leyland went bankrupt, did the government step in? They wanted 100 million, the government said no. A bank mm. goes bust, we give them 100 million, 100 billion. Oh, they've got some more as well. Northern exactly. Rock have just got more you know, money, so haven't they? We know mm. who society's for. Yes. It's not for the people. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I know I'm being <laughs> mad, but... Um, ah. Well, you've got three minutes before the news. Get another question. OK. So what do you think about Michael in Big Brother, then? Have you seen it at all? Have you... Luckily, I don't have a television. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so all the ones I was going to ask you no, about. No, because I do know about them. Uh, because I get... To, I. I judge on a couple of disability things mm. so I've got I've seen a lot of this on DVDs mm. so bizarrely I have Beyond Beyond Boundaries for example on DVD oh right uh, what do you think of that then uh, I think they're all dreadful mm. in the sense that to me Beyond Boundaries is again is about defining the good cripple who's mm. worthy of equality uh, and and it is very much about reinforcing normality you know well, don't they have a, um, an able well, supposedly able-bodied person being the voiceover. Yes. Uh, well, I thought they used to have a disabled person on the first one. All right. But, uh, you know... Because so, I'm sure there was somebody talking about them and they <laughs> <laughs> on the last one. I just was so shocked. That sounds good, actually. <laughs> but it, but I think uh, I think Beyond Boundaries, as the model one as mm. well, there's a model one at the oh, moment, yeah. isn't there? Mm. Uh, I think is, is a crime. And, and, and equally... Well, Big Brother's just a big freak show, you know. Mm. I think that's a social morality tale for mm. the working class on how they should behave. Mm. And so, and I think that's about class. Big Brother's about class more than anything else. Mm. Uh, but I think uh, Beyond Boundaries is a crime, as is the model one. Yes. And I think they do nothing for disabled people. It seems to be that freak discourse, as far yeah. as I can and see. And you're going to get, you know, people in the streets now saying, well, of course you can do that. You can go across the Andes. Why can't you go across the shop? <laughs> and also they seem to... Um, the, the notion of hierarchy that you were discussing, that seems to be central, a central <laughs> argument to all of them, whether the deaf belong to the... And I know lots of deaf pe yep. people would say they're not disabled, mm. but that those sorts of arguments are, are rehearsed. Deaf. Don't you hate them? <laughs> <laughs> 
Luckily, I have no deathlessness. <laughs> you don't know. Uh, reading it. Oh. <laughs> well, obviously, I provide Braille on dab. So uh, we're going to stop now for the news. We have Margaret Montgomery of De Montfort University in the studio with us. Uh, we're talking disability imagery and representation. And I know my listeners are probably bored stiff of me talking about it, but we're going to have another hour of it. So tough. <laughs> Don't turn over because there'll be something good on after me. No, we're going to have... This is going to be fascinating for you. So how are you? I'm fine. You're Thank fine. You very much. I'm glad. Let me turn your microphone on. <laughs> <laughs> right, so uh, we've been talking about uh, different issues of disability. So what do you, what do you want to ask me this uh, this hour? Well, just before the break, you said something quite incendiary, really. You Did said I? You hate the deaf. You hate the deaf. Who doesn't? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I have big problems with, uh, for example, the, the, the political differences mm. between deaf and disability. Uh, deaf people politicise, for example, the Deaf Fest in Wolverhampton considers deafness to be a linguistic minority and in no mm. way a disability. My personal view is that that's, that's rubbish. Uh, mm. They are disabled and mm. they've got to live with it. I have problems with the hypocrisy of, you know, they're a linguistic minority, but they're quite happy to go for their disability benefits, uh, mm. you know, as indeed they should, but they're not a linguistic minority. Uh, my problem is mainly related to the media and mm. deafness. I have a serious problem with the way deafness has been appropriated by the media as a kind of liberal inclusion of disability. Mm. And this is where my problem is, is their inclusion in the media they see as being about the overriding success of seeing themselves as a linguistic minority. And they may, may, they may well make their programmes on that basis. But to the media their disability and it ticks disability boxes mm. combined with the fact that the boxes they're ticking on disability are normalizing ones so they like the idea of it being a linguistic minority they're using it to tick the disability boxes mm. but really as a linguistic minority i.e it normalizes them it stops it being an offensive disability kind of representation mm. and so they are seen as almost as the kind of the cream of disability because you can almost deny the disability mm. and that's why deafness as I've written before 15 years ago there was a disability program on every UK mm. terrestrial station there are now none the only programs that exist are deaf programs on BBC 2 and Channel 4 and I think they've been exploited by the media to avoid the engagement with disabled people. And they have been complicit in that against disabled people. And that's mm. why I have serious problems with them. And I think they do more damage to disabled people than probably any other social grouping, apart from the broader normal population. Mm. So is and it's part, partly the idea that they can very easily pass as yep. norms. Yep, they look mm. okay. Uh, they can pass. Normal people like the idea that they can learn a bit of signing, so you know they're mm. they're they're engaging in it, when in fact it's tokenistic drivel that's actually much more damaging. And I think, for example, channels four fours. Uh, hijacking of deaf with a capital D has been one of the most seriously damaging problems for disabled people in the media in the last 20 years. 
again, I don't, I don't blame any deaf person for doing what they do in order to get ahead. It's not about individuals. But I think socially and politically, they've put disabled people back 20 years. Because they've distinguished themselves in the Absolutely. hierarchy. Absolutely. Mm. And the way that the media has used them, appropriated them, exploited them, and enabled themselves to feel good about what they do. Mm. Because they have no fear to the media, they are disabled. Mm. You know, when they're ticking all the equality boxes for disability, they're ticking it on the basis of their deaf stuff. However, the deaf like to think it's because they're a linguistic minority. Mm. So, and both sides win out of that happy delusion. And the only people that suffer are disabled people. I think that's very interesting because it seems to me that the, the argument is invariably played out, though, about whether deafness is a disability or not within those programmes, whether it's um, beyond boundaries or, mm -hmm. or whatever. They seem to go through mm. those ideas. Mm. Mm. And I think that they, and again, not their fault individually, and I, if mm. I was deaf, I'd do that to get a job, make money, have a career. Mm. But they put disabled people back 20 years. Mm. And I think equally the articulation fairly recently about people having the right to screen to allow them to have deaf children mm. was very much couched, uh, I think the John Humphreys interview mm. that we were talking about earlier, mm. but equally the following debate was articulating deafness as being okay to screen for mm. and that they should be allowed to have children mm. who are deaf. Mm. But then again, that was making the good cripple, the bad cripple uh, parallel uh, mm. paradigm. And I think that, again, caused us no end of harm. Mm. No end of harm. They do us nothing but damage as disabled people. And that, that's hard and harsh, but it's true. Mm. <laughs> yeah. and I, but it's not their fault, and I don't blame them, you know. And it's about the media, how they've exploited them, and the BBC and Channel 4 have led the way in that. Mm. And I, I think you're right, though, that the idea of being normalised as well, because the, the obviously the, the version of the good deaf person is the, the person who learns to speak. Mm -hmm. as well. So I was um, in the break, I was talking to Paul about a programme called Sue Thomas FBI, mm. which is about a profoundly deaf um, well, woman. I, and I haven't seen it, so I shall try and get some of those shows. Yeah, it's, it's on Hallmark, and I'm not advertising it, but I, I started watching it because it has a golden retriever in it, which is a bit of a mad reason. Um, and then I found out it was about a profoundly deaf woman, so it made another reason. But it, it is interesting because the whole programme is about how her mother decides that she must learn to speak so that she can't be discriminated against. Well, it's so funny because you said uh, that the, the, the good deaf person is the one who speaks. Mm. I think we've actually moved in relation to the good deaf person is the one who can speak and sign. Yes, yeah, she doesn't sign at all. Or, uh, actually, she does, it, but and, she doesn't. And it's almost got mm. to the point where the bad one is the one who can either speak or either sign. Oh. And it's actually the best one is the most socially valued and valorised is the one who can do both. Because so many non-disabled people, normal people, sign a bit and feel great sense of achievement about that. Which is a bit like saying you've been in a wheelchair for a day. Meaningless. <laughs> 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 yes, I can. <laughs> I feel terribly harsh today. <laughs> <laughs> and I've made him feel like <laughs> oh. oh, no. I, the, so, trust me, the deaf get a lot of stick up from me. So, did you see the storyline on CSI about Grissom? Yes. What did you think about that? Well, 
it's it's kind of there's nothing wrong with a little touch of impairment. Mm. There's nothing wrong it as long as impairment as, as long as it doesn't affect the notion of you as normal. But I think it did with him, didn't it? Only for one episode. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it, it, like I've seen that the last series, for example, mm. oh. and it's, it's kind of like, was this guy ever? I thought he was deaf. He's no longer deaf. It's no. kind of like, and disability is a great storyline. You know, mm. that's why films, Disease of the Week films, so often on Channel 5 on an afternoon. <laughs> are, are, that's, that's what the genre is called in the industry. Really? Disease, disease of the Week? I've disease of the that. Week. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> I remember I was on a BFI panel once and they, there, was a, there was the international buyer for the BBC. Mm. And, uh, and he used to speak about Disease of the Week films because that's what they're called, Disease of the Week. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's a genre that's very popular, you know. Which is like Channel 5, show them every afternoon, mm. you know. And, I mean, I think with CSI something strange has happened because I think somebody else has written the last series because mm -hmm. it seems to be totally bizarre. <laughs> um, but before that, I thought that it was part of his character and the idea that partially, because it was a congenital... Mm. Um, deafness it was a family hereditary thing and that it had made him yeah. occupy his own world impairment is a is is a is a very easy way in broad brush strokes to create to create a three-dimensional character mm. and that's what it's doing i think for example if if you if you read all the script writing manuals nowadays mm. it is kind of like give him something different and that 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 gives him a degree of vulnerability mm. despite the fact that he still has all the strength yeah especially if you're a man Mm. You don't need that with a woman because being a woman, they're almost there. <laughs> <laughs> Women are but deformed men, as Aristotle said. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I think the Bible says something about us being um, sinful, doesn't it? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I won't comment on that, obviously. <laughs> uh, but I think it, that that a little bit of impairment, mm. as lo as long as you can maintain your notion of normality in in the identity of a character is always a good thing it it, it gives people a, a key in and it gives them a bit of sympathy especially mm. in long running series mm. i think you'll often get that in long running series but that's just the exploitation of impairment yes cuz it was very interesting which again builds in that good cripple bad cripples cuz yeah. he's still a good cripple well he yes and also he allowed them to do things which they couldn't have done with other characters so he had a relationship with a dominatrix mm. which they couldn't have done with a more straight character absolutely but but it was all justified because of his impairment mm. in mm. a strange roundabout way mm. which is quite mm. but then that that all got resolved strangely he had but some operation <laughs> and he was transformed <laughs> so again it ties in with that notion of the medical model so it's impairment which links to the medical model mm. as as being about the the, the progressive uh, powers of technology and progress and so scientific advancement as being wholly good for society. Mm. And, of course, they're the very processes that are exterminating vast swathes of disabled people. Mm. And those groups that will be in that group are an ever-increasing group mm. that you are, can genetically identify. Mm. And, in fact, I'm doing a project in, at, with a guy at Middlesbrough University which is about genetics and, and doing motion capture animations of people with genetic conditions as an archive for future generations who won't be able to see disabled people and to see how people moved with various genetic conditions. But I think that would be useful for my generation because we didn't see disabled people either because you were all stuffed away in schools well, in the middle of the country. <laughs> it's interesting because we, we, me and Simon, discuss this repeatedly and I think it would be useful, but I think in the short term, disabled people have lost. Mm. As a kind of social grouping, we have lost. 
any significance to society. And so I see, because part of the project is to create debate now about mm. the future of society, but I think we have lost that debate and disabled people will not exist for that much longer, especially the severe congenital ones with mm. genetic impairments or even not even necessarily genetic. For example, I think spina bifida isn't particularly genetic uh, and they use other technologies like screening, ultrasound to identify them. So, And but we debate it all the time mm. and about what we see the future. As. But this project is about creating that debate now as well as offering the significance of archiving disabled people's bodies for when they don't exist any longer. Mm. And that's an interesting point because oh, my listener, my listener's <laughs> probably heard me say a thousand times. The school I went to, for example, well, the first school I went to doesn't mm. really exist as a school anymore. Mm. Um, and people think it's because a lot of special schools have shut because people have been integrated into the mainstream. Well, it isn't. The school I've been, I went to, was specifically for people with spine bifida. We don't exist anymore in the degree to the numbers that we did. So those schools can't exist because we're just not there. Mm. We no longer exist. Gosh. If you wipe out 90, 95% of a group, you can't economically have schools specifically for that group because we're just not being born. Economics. That's mm. what it all comes down to in the end. Yes, I'm sure that's, <laughs> I'm sure that's accurate. Next question. Okay, well, I've asked you about Grissom. Mm -hmm. What about um, Adrian Monk? Have you... Adrian Monk, Compulsive Obsessive Disorder. Yes. It <laughs> was originally called The Defective Detective, but they've now taken that off the um, labels for the CDs because I've got the whole five series, and he's now called The OCD det Detective. Uh, I, I, I like Monk, but I just like that kind of programme. I think Monk is probably the same as Grissom. You know, it, it's giving him a little bit of difference... Uh, and it's a difficult one because I think it's it, as as we've discussed about, for example, the Little Britain character mm. that is very popular. If you don't see yourself any any place where you see yourself, you'll enjoy. Mm. You'll you'll get something out of it, mm. even if it's just the experience of seeing that oppression on air that only you can understand. Mm. That is a great, you know, a great liberation feeling and a great experience to be able to say, yes, that's me. Mm. And I think there is there is joy in that, and so I I think a lot of people with compulsive obsessive disorder think it's brilliant. Although I interestingly I discussed this in a, a class, and there was a student who um, has obsessive compulsive disorder, and he said, "Oh, he's got that. There's there's no resemblance whatsoever to my condition." Yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. And I think often the representation does bear, but I often I enjoy terrible representations of disability much mm. more than I do good ones. Mm. A, because the good ones are so few, but I, I often feel when I'm watching a really terrible representation of disability that actually what I'm watching is truthful. You know, when I'm being mm. de depicted really badly, well, that's how society yes. sees me. <laughs> I'm right in thinking that that's how society sees mm. me because, look, this is what they're doing to me on screen. And you do, you get a, you get a kind of inverse sense of pleasure mm. out of seeing that. Because, you know, I was talking about this ouch poll before. Well, one of the people that was voted for, or maybe not even a person, was Davros from Doctor Who, mm. who's recently come back into it, but um, hadn't been seen on the screens for 20 years at the point when the ouch poll took place. And obviously... But, but there's these, these <laughs> evil, maniacal people who want to take over the world, at least they're disabled people with a bit of wit, intelligence and power. Yes. <laughs> and they're great role models. Yeah. They are. It's a terrible thing to say, but they are great role models. Mm. You know, it's kind of like I, when I was a little kid, I loved Davros. 
I've got a little model of Davros at home. <laughs> because they are, they, you know, and I love... I think the worst thing that happened to James Bond, for example, was getting normalised baddies. The mm. more crippled and deformed they are, the better. Because it's, it, 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 it's something to admire and aspire to. Mm. That sounds terrible. But to be a kind of psychotic, deformed megalomaniac mm. was, when I was little, was something you wanted to be. I suppose <laughs> actually being able to affect other people and to feel so powerful. And, and that people liked because people said, oh, yeah, they love playing baddies. They love playing, mm. you know, and it was it was it was wonderful. I suppose it's like women liking Joan Collins in Dynasty or something Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe not quite the same. <laughs> but having said that, uh, you know, and it's, it's the, the thing I've always said, you know, people's biggest problems are usually their own group. Women's biggest mm. problem is other women. Mm. Black people's biggest problem is other black people. And it's mm. the same disabled people's biggest problem is disabled people. You know, because, mm. you know, we're, we're either too busy normalising or just ignoring the issues or reinforcing others' oppression. And is, do you think that's partially a structural thing, that, that um, because disabled people and women are not the powerful people in society, we're continuously invited to fight amongst ourselves. A few crumbs are scattered and we all have to, like ducks in a pond, have to rush for them. And know? it's easier to be mm. what others want you to be, you mm. know. And I think disabled people are very good at that. You know, mm. I know a lot of disabled people. You know, you see them with different groups of people and they are completely different people. You know, they, they can be in a one group and be the really pathetic. Well, I've, I can do it. You know, I've met people who, you know, you go and see them, especially if you want something off them. You know, they, <laughs> they want a, a, a pathetic little, you know, handicapped person. I can play that role as good as anybody else. You mm. know, if they want someone who's articulate and aggressive and mouthy I can do that as well you know mm. and I move between all those roles quite easily and quite well mm. you know so a lot of people if you spoke to different people who'd know me and said you know describe them they wouldn't have any relationship to one another because mm. there's some people you know you know like if you're in boots and some old lady comes up and taps you on the head and says uh, the Lord forgives you for what your father did like, what are you supposed to do you know does that happen oh yeah and it's kind of like and people say, well, why don't you shout at them? You know, what's the point, you know? If they've got that kind of view, whatever I say is not going to change it. No. And say so you just go, thanks. What else are you supposed to do? You know, and that, that's, you know, and I think most disabled people experience those kind of things most days. There's never a day goes by without a child I don't feel completely, completely dehumanised and oppressed. And if you have that every day, you know, what are you going to do? You can't challenge everything. you just got to go... Such is life. Uh, that's very interesting because of the sort of the representation of the vulnerability of the disabled, but then the expectation that they're so totally insensitive that we can mm. say all those things. And equally, most people, what most people do, they don't do out of malevolence. No. They almost entirely do with benevolence. With if, and mm. I almost wish it was malevolent because malevolence is much harder to challenge and point out and reveal to others. Benevolence is much harder to challenge. Mm. You know, my attacks on various charities, mm. uh, most people think that's terrible and I shouldn't do that. You know, whereas if they were a male malevolent organisation mm. that was, you know, that Amnesty had identified, you know, and said, oh, they do that, everybody would go, oh, you're right, you're right. Give it a touch of benevolence and it's almost impossible mm. to challenge. Mm. Like the Channel 4 and the BBC stuff with the deaf. Mm. You know, my stuff about deafness... The nuances of that, for most people, are very, very difficult to come to grips with. Mm. 
And because it's done with a degree of benevolence, it's almost impossible to challenge. Mm. And whilst you were speaking, I was thinking about the um, current series of creature discomforts that the Leonard Cheshire homes mm -hmm. have made. And I don't know what you think about those and that. Well, I have a history with Leonard Cheshire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not a very good history. Right. Uh, because I did a website attacking them. And I got took to uh, the World Intellectual Property Organisation in Geneva for a domain name that they took off me, mm. uh, which I always knew I'd lose. So I have a history with them. I have serious problems with any institutionalising charity. Mm. And I think they're a crime against society that put back disabled people. Mm. Seriously, serious problems with them. But again, because they're a charity, who, who, who hates charity? Mm. I think... Fundamentally, to me, charity damages everybody involved, the giver, the recipient, and society. There's mm. nothing good about charity. Well, and it's interesting, because I suppose if you trace its roots back, it was clearly to for people to atone for some sin that they'd committed, that mm. they gave charity, mm -hmm. or to, I don't know, to, for being too worldly, they gave some of their goods away. Well, you buy so. your way into heaven. Yes, yes, you I know. think so. And so yeah. that, I suppose, is still people don't really look at what they're doing at the same point. Well, it's interesting because I think a lot more people are aware of certain things, but they don't they don't quite have the ability to go that next step. Uh, and, and I don't just mean about disability, mm. Jerry. I think, for example, I think Band-Aid, for example, uh, mm. was, was one of the most incredibly damaging things for Africa. It would have been much better if those people had been political about it from day one. Mm. Instead, it was about donations. You know, mm. and it's a complex one because those donations saved people's lives, and that's a reality. Mm -hmm. And charity saves people's lives, but charity also perpetuates the problems yes. that mean you need charity. Yes, because it didn't mean that the World Bank. Whereas, if every one of those pop mm -hmm. stars had come on and said, "Don't you give us a penny? Vote for the next people that will abolish debt, mm. that will do that," and had said, "Don't give us a penny," that would have achieved much more. Mm. And it's interesting that it's taken Band-Aid 25 years to actually come round and sort of saying, well, actually, we should be getting involved with politicians. Mm. It's too late. Mm. Because they've already negated the power they had through being a charity. That, that seems to go along with the sort of the society we have now where people kind of feel that things are only worth it if you pay for them, mm -hmm. rather than, mm. um, I think I was brought up with an idea that you should participate in things. Mm. And that was your value mm. rather than the money you had. Mm. But that seems to have changed because people don't participate in politics in the same way, it seems to me. I, and I link that actually to the narrowing notion of what normality is. Mm. I think you've had a, a, the creation of a banality within political ideas as well. Mm. And that, that kind of notion of homogeneity, wherever the word is, is very now narrow, much like normality is. It's mm. narrowing and narrowing. And everything outside of that is seen as deviant. Mm. And I think the, the kind of whole political world... You know, when I was a kid, there was communists, there was Trotskyites, mm. there was fascists and all that mm. kind of stuff. Anything outside of a, a kind of three-party system, any ideology outside of that, is now almost seen as criminal. Mm. Whereas, you know, when I was growing up, you know, there was communists in your street, there was fascists at one end and, you know... <laughs> Races nutters up, you know, the whole spectrum was there, and that was seen as part of the political process. Mm. Now, anything outside of you know a very narrow band of three political parties is fundamentally seen as criminal. 
But I think also the idea of, the, of people belonging to political parties is seen as abnormal now. Absolutely. That, that mm. um, they're seen as the, the people who want to be politicians mm. themselves rather than it being something that you do to express your political ideas mm. or mm. try and achieve something socially. Mm. Yeah. So my problem with charities is, is charity per se. It's not just mm. about disability ones. Mm. Although obviously I would specifically identify disability ones. And, uh, but for example... The, what the creature comforts things, bringing mm. it back to what we're talking about, mm. the creature comforts <laughs> things again is 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 incredibly damaging. It's just creating this notion of the good cripple, bad cripple, mm. and it's almost adding a little variation on it. There's, you know, we accept there's these bad cripples, you know, those ones we've got to put in homes, but really they're cuddly and warm and cosy, you know, and and they're mm. not really that bad, and and they need your help, and so it's kind of like a little variation on the bad one with a little touch of niceness, which is just. Equally, I think they lack originality. Uh, you know, it's kind of like creature comforts. You know, Ardman have been doing it for 10, 20 years. Mm. You come to the end of it, give it to a charity. <laughs> I that's interesting. I thought it was something about Britishness as well, and how I mean, as I said before, I started watching Sue Thomas FBI because it had a golden retriever in it. You know, it's kind of the same scenario mm. with the um, creature discomforts, where people will look at it because it's yep. disabled animals. I agree. Rather than disabled people. But fundamentally, it's not about equality; it's about charity. Mm. And I think. And that ties in with government tendencies. Like government is about farming out all social welfare provision mm. to the to the uh, what they call the voluntary sector, mm. which is fundamentally going to put disabled people back into a Victorian era of having to go to charities. Yes, when when you were saying earlier about the um, people with learning difficulties or differences being at the bottom of the disabled pile, um, when I worked for this organisation in Sheffield, one of the things was that I, I was teaching a group of 10 adults with learning disabilities and um, they were trying to pay me £7 an hour to do that, which is just above the minimum wage. And you think, well, how can you expect to have skilled and qualified people do this job? Mm on that money but why would you want skilled and qualified people because fundamentally there's no point well and they didn't want them a second time they there got me go. to do, provide the materials and then no more mm. so and then get someone in on minimum wage to deliver it that's exactly what they did which <laughs> i think is and but of course they transformed the whole process because mine was actually about trying to make these people have a nice time for at least two hours a week i've, I've tried to make them feel that they were the center of the universe and that you know and and I really wanted to do that. And then they were put into a control situation where they were asked to you know, sit in rows and be quiet and all those things, which they've spent their whole life doing. And that's about their academic value, which is going down, down, down. Mm. Next question. We've only got half an hour. And in fact, on that note, I've got to play some trials. So let me play a trial. <laughs> Don't forget to join me, Lyndon, each week during the early hours of a Saturday morning from midnight till 2am with the weekend warm-up. So if you're hopping between clubs or just having a rave in the house, I'll be bringing you the best in dance, house and trance from years gone by and right up to the cutting edge of today. So that's the weekend warm-up from midnight till 2am on a Saturday morning with me, Lyndon, right here on 101.8 WCR-FM. Well, we're back in the studio with uh, Margaret Montgomery of De Montfort University doing some research on disability in the media and she's asking me lots of fascinating questions to which I'm giving dreadful answers to. Uh, so, uh, what's the next question? Well, what sort of media do you think would make a difference or does make a difference? What media makes a difference? None. 
There you go. No, even question. the stuff you produce. It, it's a difficult one. I think uh, it's a bit like disability equality training. I think there are one or two individuals who it will change their lives. Mm. But mostly people especially non-disabled people, have the ability to distort whatever you do to suit their own ideologies. Mm. So, for example, you can do the best DET training about mm. a social model with a group of people and they completely get it, they completely mm. understand it. And then as they leave, they say, you're so brave, Paul. Showing completely <laughs> that they've actually been able to manage to distort it completely to suit their view of what they want you to be. Mm. And so fundamentally, I don't think any can, any media can change it without true social change. Mm. And you, it needs to be led by social change. Mm. So, for example, my big problem, I, I have serious problems with what the BBC and Channel 4 do with disability, but it's not their fault. The true fault mm. is the government through failing to make them deliver on true cultural diversity remits that they have. Mm. And so it has to be come from a kind of social, political move first. And as that move is against disabled people, whatever media you produce can't change it. And I think that's why Channel 4, 20 years ago, when we were in a kind of transitional period, could have made a big difference in the lives of disabled people. Mm. But that period has gone, and I think we've now moved in full steam ahead in a kind of scientific, technological advancement, medicalised view of people. And that's not just disabled people, I think that's all people. Mm. And I think that, that transitional moment when we move from a kind of social liberal community idea of what the worth of mm. society was has moved on. Yeah, that's interesting because I suppose that fits in with programmes like 10 Years Younger mm -hmm. where they do quite extensive... Um, surgery on people to make mm. them look better yep. supposedly to improve their lives mm -hmm. or the swan the american version mm -hmm. which i find them quite you watch far too much television <laughs> it's <is> my job <laughs> honestly it is my job but uh, but i also <laughs> and i can't watch them for long because i hate anything medical anyway i'm so yeah. squeamish but it but it always worries me so much as well because it kind of implies that if you look a certain way if you're transformed physically that that actually how you feel and how people treat you will change whereas i suspect if you're the single the 50 year old single mother of three kids and you have a rubbish job nothing's going to make you feel that good because that's not valued in society absolutely you know i still think we we should do what we do mm. and try to change things mm. but I have quite a bleak, pessimistic view of the future for disabled people, particularly mm. in this society. And I think, you know, I think the media follows. It doesn't lead, whatever mm. that is. And I think that's why Channel 4 is such a, a bitter failure mm. for me in relation to... Uh, again, not just disabled people. I, I, I'm constantly saying about disabled people, I think, but in, in issues of race and gender, Channel 4 have let down women, uh, ethnic minorities... Uh, and I think the betrayal of that through failing to grasp the moment in a transitional moment in society was is is tragic for mm. us. And it's allowed a kind of scientific mentality, scientific and economic view of humanity to take control and define politics. Mm. Such is life. Mm. So... Um, when you had the film festival here mm -hmm. and you had a, a series of films mm -hmm. about disability and um, 
people with disabilities. Is there, I mean, because I thought that that was an, an intervention. It was actually an attempt yeah, to... Yeah, and I think we, we've got to do what we can do. Mm. And it's our duty and our role. Uh, and it, I think I was reading about Shoal Solzhenitsyn. He, he felt that if he wasn't writing about the gulags and, and the oppression of people in Russia... Whenever he wasn't writing, he felt he, he, felt he was betraying mm. the victims of the past. And that's why I do it. Mm. And I think it's why we've got to do it, because we, we have to make those interventions. Uh, because if we don't, we are betraying <clears throat> those who aren't allowed to exist and those who've suffered in the past. And that's why we've got to mm. do it. But as to ch achieving success, I don't actually... You don't think it's going to make a real difference? You think it's... No. Mm. I think... <laughs> uh, Paul said he could give a negative answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, uh, but equally, you know, it, it's fun. It can be fun. And I think mm. it's great to see the past and the future and what disabled people are doing. And there are disabled people out there doing stuff. And it's about giving them opportunities for exhibition, opportunities of production. And I think, you mm. know, because uh, if we don't do it, no one else can do it. Yes, I was just thinking about the film that was about the young people who go to make a film. Mm -hmm. I forgot what it was called. But in that process, it actually gave all those young people the opportunity to be to act and to be on screen. Mm -hmm. And I presume there were other people doing production roles. Yep. Yep. And I suppose that, that's very important because I'm not sure that um, there are enough opportunities. Well, I know there aren't enough opportunities for disabled actors and so on. And I think often the, the opportunities that are being, being created are being created by ourselves. Mm. They're not being created by those who should be creating those opportunities, like Channel Four, like the mm. BBC. Mm. They, 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 they've lost any desire to engage with disabled people. I think, except on kind of normalised basis. And I think so. It is important, and equally, it will change some people's lives. You know, I think uh, what the film festival, someone, even if one person comes along and thinks, yeah, I understand disability politics. I understand what what we're trying to do. What we're trying to say. That makes it worth it. Mm. And I think, you know, it's like it's coming back to the DET. There will be one in a thousand who it will change their lives. That mm. makes it worth it. You know, you still want to do it for the other 999. Yes. Yes, because it, it does seem to me that the, obviously what the difference that needs to be made is with the, the non-disabled because nothing mm. can change until mm. we change our attitudes mm. and our behaviours. And But equally, I, I understand why they're not going to engage with it. Why? Because it it starts to threaten the, the basis on which they live their lives. If they're fully supportive of the screening out of disabled people, which most people fundamentally are, if you said to them, you know, do you think it's right to screen out uh, spina bifida? Mm. They'd say, yes. Is it right to screen out Down syndrome? Without a doubt, most people wouldn't even give it a second thought that that was a good thing. Mm. So you can't then expect them to come along to a disability film festival that says, oh, we're, we're glad we're born, we're glad to be who we are. Uh, and society, there should be more of us. Why on earth would they come to that? That's a, that's, that is a direct challenge to the, to the core of, of what they base their lives on. But most people have never heard the counter-argument. Uh, it's not one that's made, I don't think. Mm. But why would they want to hear it? If, if the consequences of, of the view that they have is achieving mass success in the eradication of certain groups of people. It starts mm. to, if you start to make them think about things, it's kind of like, that's scary stuff. And I understand why they don't come. And I, I agree, they haven't mm. heard the counter-argument. That's mm. why we've got to do it. Yes. And some might come and some might change. And that's, you have to do it. You've got to do it.
But I, equally, it's quite logical for me to expect them to come. Because if you think about what their views are, even if it's by default, it's not that they've thought about it, it's just a default view that, well, of course it's better to not be have Down syndrome. Of course it's better not to have spina bifida. But I think there was also, I, the, the discourse I remember, particularly when I was at school, was about, oh, it's so much trouble, it's so difficult to have a child in these circumstances and so on. But then when I work with these adults with learning difficulties, I realise the great pleasure mm. and, the, and the things that they did make me realise about myself. Mm. I, I, it was an experience that I, I'm so happy that I had. Mm. And it, so it seems to me that you know, that is an argument that has to be made or that people it have to... just makes you an exceptional human being. I don't think I am, though. I actually do think that if... Don't I... underestimate <laughs> it. Because <laughs> most people wouldn't even contemplate doing it. You know, most people... You know, I'm generalising, but I think, mm. you know, you can't... Most people aren't going to engage in that when often they've fully supported various... For example, like euthanasia. Mm. Most people think euthanasia is a good thing. I think, and, and I think given the opportunity, most people would legislate for it to be the case, mm. including disabled people, you know, and that's reinforced by the media. The media, mm. you know, it doesn't really engage in the debate against and offer the alternative argument. It just has, you know, Miss Smith has, you know, gone to court to fight for the right to go and travel to Switzerland and be mm. kill herself, you know. When, when you start to question them, they often will change their view, but the point is, is they're not going to be given that opportunity to have that view challenged. Mm. And they're not. And the point is, is people don't seek out opportunities to be challenged. And it's a nice idea that they they would, but they don't. If mm. if if they come across it, they'll often enjoy it, and they are open. And that's that is ways, but that is where our hope is yes. in what we do. Mm. But the point is, is, they're not going to seek out opportunities to be challenged in the mm. way they see the world that's not what people fundamentally do we all like to go along in our own little cozy world and i'm no different mm. you know i'm not saying i'm you know some great radical who seeks out daily <laughs> opportunities to be challenged i don't mm. you know i want to sit home and watch monk yes i have to i have to admit on lots of levels <laughs> i entirely agree with you because in terms of my media Yes, I mean, I, I much prefer fiction any day of the week. I don't like documentaries. There you I, go. I particularly don't like television ones because I hate being told something and then shown it. I've d and equally, <laughs> they'll leave out the best bits as well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, the, and also they have to show you something. And so but that's both our hope and our mm. despair. Is our, mm. hope, our despair is, is they aren't going to seek out those opportunities to be challenged. But the hope is equally is, is that if they come across them, often they will engage with it and they will open their minds to difference. That, mm. That's the irony of it. I think most people, uh, for example, studies have shown that most most uh, young people are very for kind of like the integration and the inclusion of disabled people in society, mm. which is a good thing. Mm. But equally, you know, they're also participating in the mass extermination of other groups. Down syndrome, spina bifida, cystic fibrosis is another genetic, you mm. know, identifiable group. Well, and people also don't want to think about... Um, psychological yeah and that's where the media i think is mm. very important for example you said you grew up with this idea that mm. it, it was terrible mm. you know to have a disabled child was terrible mm. well fundamentally because it often it is you will be mm. poor mm. you will be marginalized you won't have friends mm. you won't be able to go out you won't have any money mm. you know so and the media often portrays and it will often portray a particular impairment as the medical profession do 
because often the media go to the medical profession for mm. experts. Yes. <laughs> they almost always pick worst-case scenarios. Mm. But if you read about spina bifida in any medical text, it will tell you what spina bifida is. The fact that that applies to very few of people mm. with spina bifida is irrelevant. It will apply in a worst-case scenario. Mm. But most of us don't fit, fit that worst-case scenario. We have it in lesser degrees. Mm. You know, if you, if you read about spina bifida, you know, you're retarded. You'll die young. Uh, you know, all these other things. Mm. I'm not. Mm. I'm not most of those things. Mm. Yet, if you say to someone spina bifida, that's what it says, because that's what the medical books say. Mm. And media go to the medical professions. And again, the charities that represent us, which is, again, my problem with charity... Why are they going to challenge that worst-case scenario when they're the experts called in to advise media? Because they want that worst-case scenario as much because that's what pulls the money in. Mm. You know, so, for example, EastEnders had a scenario about spina bifida uh, and abortion, and they called in the charity that represents people with spina bifida and hydrocephalus. They didn't say, well, this is rubbish. You know, why are you picking the worst-case scenario? That applies to so few people with spina mm. bifida. But they were happy to go along with that because they want the money to roll in because they're as dependent on the worst-case scenario as the medical professional. That's why charity is as bad as the medical professional. Mm. You've only got 15 minutes. <laughs> OK. Well, another point that perhaps... A question that leads on from that is um, you've been involved in media education. You created mm -hmm. a, a pack for the BFI and mm -hmm. sort of... Um, do you think that disability perspectives and issues are finding a place in the curriculum? Because that could be one way where people could be invited to open up because mm. if children were introduced to the ideas at an early enough age, mm. perhaps that could challenge? Yes, but I doubt it'll happen. Mm. Because I just can't logically see how you can have a society doing certain things on one side and then the opposite on the other side. So if, if, you're, if you're eradicating certain groups of disabled people and those groups are going to, be, are in, going to increase through mm. scientific mm. Uh, advancements, through genetic screening, all those kind of things. So, you know, mm. And the, the very point that you've developed a test isn't to sort of say, well, it's good to be that. You don't develop a test for X mm. to say, isn't X good? <laughs> <laughs> you've, the very fact that you've developed a test for X... Mm. Is telling you something, mm. and and say so I can't see logically, and it's and I think it's going to be fascinating how society progresses and deludes itself to work with two opposing ideologies of equality and exclusion mm. of certain groups, and I honestly don't know the answer. I think it's going to be fascinating and I think the media's role in that is going to be fascinating because mm. I, I can't, I'm not optimistic. So my view is, is they're going to marginalise the equality to, to do the eradication. And, and, I, and I, I, I don't know the answer because mm. I think education, education is, is very interesting because I, I, when I was younger, I believed in education. Mm. I don't believe in it as much. I thought education <laughs> would solve the problems of the world. Mm. But I think however much you educate people, they can somehow hold on to their old mentalities with a, with a degree of vigour that's surprising despite the evidence in front of them. 
And so I think more people, and again, looking at it logically, and I, I get confused, even myself, more people now know disabled people mm. in their community, yet medically we do that. We exterminate that group in a way that we never could have dreamt of in the past. Hitler couldn't have dreamt of it. Mm. And we do that. And again, it's kind of like, how do you, how do, you do that? And I, 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 I'm baffled. How? Do you, do you get what I mean? And it's kind of like the, the complexities of the mind that enables individuals, groups and society to do those two parallel things is, is fantastic. And it is both the despair and the hope within itself. Do you get what I mean? Yes, yes. It's I suppose it's um, because we're not invited to think about it in mm. part, mm. and I suppose maybe because of um, the emphasis of education on qualifications and um, examination and all these things yeah. all the time, rather than on understanding or being able to mm. argue about things, discuss things. And I think that 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 could be the way society does it in a negative way that it uses education as a way of defining etiquette and knowledge mm. rather than thought. And I think often that's what schools do. My experiences of uh, children at school, which I have a little bit, <laughs> is that children aren't particularly taught to thought, to think. No. That's the last thing a school teaches people nowadays is to think. It teaches them what they need to know and how to put that down on a piece of paper in a test. Mm. not that they think about it so that it changes the way they live their lives mm. I've, I've, but I think that that's always been the model of education since it, mass education was introduced in 1871 <laughs> it's preparing people for the workforce see I've brought you down to my <laughs> level there see I, I knew I could make you as, as negative and depressed as me but it seems to me that there, well, there, there can always be places though there are always sort of some opportunities in there Hopefully, <laughs> please. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think, and that's that. So that is our hope, and mm. so the the thing that causes the despair is the thing that causes the hope. Because mm. I think I think they're there, but I, I do fear that it'll be taught a bit like most things, as you know, something you learn, you do a test on, and then that's it, and then you forget it. Mm. You know, it's just like chemistry, and it's almost like it's science. It's kind of like it's in most people's everyday lives, it's meaningless. Mm. but it's just something you've learnt about you did a test in and then it got you somewhere else mm. and that, that's what they'll do with like disability studies or... it's, it's very interesting I mean I, I teach some material around disability and I'm very aware that some people will think they're doing disability mm. and I just don't know I've tried to think of all different tactics to try and challenge that mm. to, to try and make them think about normalcy and, and all that because that's the centre of the, the module we're looking at is actually identity and how we understand ourselves and mm. what those criteria for voting ourselves into things and I think that one of the things you said at the very beginning which is that identity and normality are very fragile, essential there mm -hmm. and Absolutely is, and, and is trying to think about well actually why do we have to be this sort of person? Mm. Why do we have mm. to be physically or mentally like that in this society? We don't. It's not necessary. It's, we, you know... It, uh, we don't in the sense that we do because it suits the state. It suits the state and it suits the economy. Normality mm. is about the state and the economy. 
It's mm. not because no one's normal. Normality doesn't exist. No. So this delusion that normal people live under <laughs> is mm. a delusion, mm. and and I think that's what that's why it's so fragile. But it's the thing that enables a state and an economy to define itself and to grease its oily wheels. Mm, and sort of disciplining. And yes, yes. And I think, so the most disciplined, normalised group are the middle classes. Mm. And the way in which they discipline themselves in their weight, their manners, their language, all of those kind of things. And, and it's often about etiquette, with, which is pure veneer. Mm. Shows that it's about it's about defining other things rather than who you are. Mm. But the, but then there's in, you know, terrible danger in that. I think you can't suddenly go away, you know, abolishing normality because so many people are trapped within it that it could lead to chaos that could actually be scarier. And so you're actually caught again between giving people the opportunity to define their own own identity which if they've never done before because they've been very trapped in a kind of ideology of normality mm. uh, will be so scary for so many people that it could just become quite uh, something that they couldn't do. It, which is kind of, if you turn it on its head, because nobody is normal mm -hmm. and everybody knows that they're not oh. and everybody buys into yep. I mean, I mean, I think it's kind of like a very contradictory concept in that way. Absolutely, absolutely. But then... But that's what I say about society. It's doing these two things about disabled yeah. people. On, and it's kind of like, how on earth can any society function when it's doing these two opposing things? Mm. But we all manage it. Mm. Because you, you would think it... If you, you know, followed, we all don't yeah. like global warming. Mm. Where's the cheapest petrol? <laughs> that's what I'll make a sense. You know, we don't, like, yeah. we don't like the fact that millions are starving around the world. Mm. But where's the nearest Kentucky Fry? Mm. It's kind of like... Our ability, our creative abilities to actually allow oppression, destruction and terror all around us and yet just carry on our lives as normal is amazing. Mm. And that is both, our, again, I come back to that, is both our hope that you can get into that, mm. but equally it's our despair because it's kind of like what they do already in that kind of mm. mental state of, of, of difference, of... Uh, polar opposites is staggering mm. which is why I think when you do get through to some people it can unravel their lives if they've lived their life they give to charity mm. you know they do they they buy Christmas pop songs about Africa you know they do all these kind of things but once you start to sort of say well actually that's not good that's not good their whole lives can unravel and that's mm. that's scary got five minutes <laughs> <laughs> i think i'd come to the end of my questions there i mean um so to go back to the original question which was actually about um well about media education mm. I, I suppose in a way because one of the things you were talking about before was about how we don't have enough disabled people in institutions of education and media mm -hmm. production and so on um and the, the people who are there tend to be normalized or have to be apologists mm -hmm. and so the sort of um so, so we've got to we've got to look for the cracks, mm. which we can get into, to get the money to then do what we want to do. Mm. And I think when I've run grant systems in the past, for example, I run a I think this, this applies across the board. I run a, a film and video project for the Arts Council that was very full of criteria and all that kind of mm. stuff. And then I 
someone would get a grant and I'd say, ignore what you've said, go away, do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> this is the only time you're ever going to get money where you don't have to care about the audience. Mm. I'm the funder. I don't give a, I don't give a toss. Mm. Go and make whatever you want that can be the best and most challenging that you can make it. Don't mm. give anything else a second thought. And I think that's what we've got to look at. You know, mm. for example, I think a lot of organisations are terrified of becoming charities. Become a charity and exploit the cracks. Mm. You know, get the money to be able to do the things that you want to do to change the way you see society. Mm. And again, with the media and, and grants for arts or from the charities or from heritage, get the money and make what you want to make. Because often they're the things that they don't actually care what you're doing. Mm. They don't expect you ever to be seen. And that's where you've got to exploit that to get in the cracks and then make the cracks bigger mm. so that more people can get in. Mm. I think one of the other the other problems there is I mean, you can get people who get within the cracks and create something, but then there's no continuity to that yeah. that funding. And obviously yeah. people do need to make a living and and you need money to create art or films mm. or mm. Yeah. no and i appreciate that which is why i, I you know I, i've written stuff where i've said that all disabled people working in the arts have betrayed the cause which is true we have but it's understandable because we wanted a living mm. and so it's not about blaming individuals that's why the target is the system and the structures mm. and the whole fundamental basis of the society that we live in it's not about <laughs> individuals doesn't want much <laughs> <laughs> well for example like you know i'm against screening Mm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, logically, people would say, oh, well, so you're against abortion. I'd say, well, I am against abortion, but I don't blame any individual for having one if mm. they're going to have a disabled child mm. because I know what the consequences will be and I understand why they see the consequences as being it. So I don't blame mm. any individual for doing yes. that, you know. Mm. And so if I want to change it, I've got to change society first before I can stop saying, you know, if you don't want people to have abortions, there's no point in saying, well, you shouldn't be allowed to do it. That's ridiculous. Mm. because why shouldn't they be because what they think is going to be the result of having a disabled child will be the result poverty, marginalisation, mm. lack of services lack of support you'll probably be marginalised by your friends and your family mm. and it's wrong so you've got to change society so that people don't choose that as an option and mm. that's what's important so they don't think I'll screen I'll test screen for deafness or I'll screen well deafness is alright obviously we never less deaf people <laughs> but you know what I mean mm. and so it's about where you come from it and you've got to come from it from the top down there's no point in blaming individuals we all do yeah. what we do and mm. I'm, I do stuff that, I, that damages disabled people because mm. I need money well I think the other thing is that guilt is a waste of time isn't it you, you know there's no point in the people <sighs> dwelling on it either yeah, but without guilt I wouldn't do anything <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not even religious and I didn't go to a Catholic school so mm. I think guilt plays I think a lot of disabled people I know guilt is a big big thing in their lives that sense of you know the knowledge that you have of for example the Holocaust we've got one minute what a time to bring up the Holocaust with <laughs> yeah. one minute mm. disabled people's significance in the Holocaust is, is virtually denied completely we were the mm. first to be eradicated they developed the gas chambers on disabled people who knows that Mm. And I think mo most of us who do know that, that weighs heavy on us. That mm. knowledge weighs heavy on us and on our significance and our role and our duty and why we keep going. Mm. Why we don't say, 
let's go in an institution and let them mm. make all our decisions for the rest of our lives. There was actually um, a trailer. I was going to say there was a trailer <laughs> at the film festival about for a film about that, wasn't there? Yep. Well, uh, a lot of disabled people are doing stuff, and I think mm. the internet is a place to see that. And Bill Shaban's got some stuff on YouTube about the Holocaust and disabled people oh, that's well that. worth looking at. And on that happy note, <laughs> uh, you'll have to come again when you've you. uh, identified the results of your research and we can talk about that in detail. <laughs> thank you very much. I'd like to thank you for coming and I wish you a safe journey back to Leicester. Thank you.